0: Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting-edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. EdTalks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This EdTalks focuses on understanding the experiences of students with unique needs. Our featured speaker is Dr. Ann Mastin. Dr. Mastin is a Regents Professor of Child Development and the Irving B. Harris Professor of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Mastin has studied resilience in children and families experiencing homelessness for more than 25 years in collaboration with shelter providers and school districts in the Twin Cities. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on September 25th,
1: 2017. Wow, my all my students at the U would love this classroom, this is great. I've never spoken at this kind of a venue, it's wonderful. But, Before I begin, I want to just say that a lot of what I know about students experiencing homelessness, I've learned from people in this room, you know who you are, and you're going to answer all the hard questions later. Well, as you heard, I study resilience, and I came to Minnesota in uh, 1986 when I was like in kindergarten for graduate school in order to study clinical psychology with one of the great pioneers of research on resilience, Norman Garmesey at the U. And um, the kind of questions that people who study resilience ask are questions like these. How do children or other people overcome adversity to succeed? What makes a difference? And how can we promote resilience? And there are many ways to promote resilience. We've just seen a beautiful example of artistic expression as a strategy. What I wanna do today is highlight work on risk and resilience in uh, students experiencing homelessness, but I do want to pause for a moment and define what I mean by resilience, because there's been some controversy about it. I think of resilience as the capacity of a person I'm interested in children and families, a person to adapt successfully to challenges that really threaten that person's life in some way, their adjustment, their future, their development. And I like this kind of a definition because it can be applied to a family, to an individual child, but it can also be applied to an economy and to a whole region. And right now, as we watch people struggling to overcome the natural disasters we've seen, earthquakes and hurricanes in recent weeks, you begin to appreciate that the resilience of any person or any larger system is interconnected to the resilience of others. So I want to talk about uh, children who experience family homelessness today. And I want to begin by telling you very briefly how I got involved in this. I was drawn into it by the Wilder Foundation, and this was in the 1980s. Pe- people got very concerned about homelessness in families because it surged all of a sudden in the mid-80s. There hadn't been that many people around, families on the streets with children who were homeless, but this phenomenon emerged, it emerged very quickly. And Wilder, which has the mission of serving disadvantaged families in St. Paul, uh, wanted to know what they could do to help. And I was at the time uh, volunteering there. I was teaching at the U, but I was volunteering as a clinical psychologist in their child guidance clinic. And so they figured I was already volunteering, I could do a little more volunteering for them and they asked me to look into the situation. What do we know uh, from research about the issue of homelessness in families and children, and also what's going on in the Twin Cities? And they sent me on this little mission to go out and learn what I could, and I visited shelter providers and the school districts around the Twin Cities, and I looked in the literature, and what I basically learned was that we knew hardly anything. There was hardly any research. Schools were struggling to know what to do to support these families. The shelter providers had counts, like how many, pe- how many people are in this building right now, but they really didn't know much about these children or their parents and what their needs were, and they wanted to know. And that experience motivated me to start doing research that might be informative to help out the school district and the shelter providers to learn what could we learn that would be useful in supporting the well-being and resilience of these families. And so in 1989, I did the first study that I was going to embark on at People Serving People Shelter. That was the largest, by far, the largest shelter in the upper Midwest and still is one of the largest in the U.S. And they were absolutely wonderful there, and they really wanted to know, they wanted to learn. And they welcomed me to collaborate with them and do my first survey. And I I can't go into detail here, but I wanted to share with you that, you know, from the very first moment, we could see tremendous risk, but also tremendous resilience in these families. We measured how they were doing. We, f- we compared homeless families and their children and how, how they were faring with other low-income families who were not in a homeless crisis. And we learned that indeed there was a lot of risk in these families and there was a lot of economic despair and distress, but we also learned that even in the midst of a crisis, there are families who and parents who manage to Uh, take care of their children, encourage them to do well in school. And when you saw that, when you saw a parent who was involved in education and doing what they could to support their children, those children did better in school. So we did a lot of research at the time, and you can read all about it in some of our uh, publications, but we all thought at that time that this was temporary, that family homelessness had surged on a temporary basis and that it would subside. And we were all hopeful that that would happen, but of course we were wrong. Uh, Otherwise I wouldn't be up here today talking about the issues and needs of students who are experiencing homelessness. So what happened was homelessness continued to increase. From the late 80s, it increased steadily all the way through the 90s. It leveled off in families and children around 2000 and then it began to surge again and of course it began to surge when the economic crisis that we would come to call the uh, great recession began to emerge and i think of homelessness as a leading economic indicator because you began to see kids and families bubbling up in the service sector for homelessness in schools, in shelters, before we were aware that the crisis was upon us. And that's because what happens in a downturn in our economy is you see the most vulnerable, you see who's affected, who's the most vulnerable people in your society. And these disadvantaged families were the most vulnerable. The the picture you see here is a graph from the Department of Education and this shows you the data since the recession and what you see here is again the surge of homelessness. What you're looking at here is compiled by the Department of Education because now the federal government supports the education of homeless students and they require that you keep records and report to them on at least an annual basis um, how many students are in your your system and they provide funding to help support their education. So school districts report to the state and the state reports to the government. And what you're looking at here is the number of students identified as homeless at the end of the year for the past decade or so. And the average rate of increase is about 15% per year over the past decade, although it slowed down a little bit last year and everybody's hoping that maybe that's a new trend. But so here's this problem. The numbers are distressing, but they're probably an underestimate because it's impossible to count all of the kids who actually are homeless. The other striking piece of information that's important to know is that there are very distressing racial disparities in who is homeless and that students who are identified as homeless. And these are the Minnesota data from the same report that provided the previous graph thanks to the Department of Education. And what you can see here is that compared to the number of students in Minnesota of a particular ethnicity, there's a great rep- overrepresentation of African American, Native American, and Hispanic students who are identified as experiencing homelessness with their families. That's true across the country. Um, the, it varies which kind of ethnicity is overrepresented, but this is an indicator of poverty and inequity. The data I have here that I want to share is the result of collaboration with the Minneapolis Public Schools. We're very fortunate in, in this region to have really good researchers both at the state level who compile the data I showed you before and at the uh, school district level. And Minneapolis has had a tradition of particularly good research department. And because, you know, the the big districts really had to keep track not only of who's eligible for these homeless benefits, but also for years and years we've kept track of who's qualified for free and reduced price meals, because again, there's a federal program to provide funding for school districts and states, so you have to identify people. Because the Minneapolis keeps such good records, we were able to work with them and analyze administrative data, and what you're looking at here is The reading scores for all the kids who took the reading tests, they take the same test in Minneapolis every fall. This is a, a, a measure. It measures what you're learning. This isn't just like different people every year. This is repeated. Five years of testing, all the kids in the third to eighth grade, many of them were repeating every year, taking a reading test. And what this gives you is a picture of learning over time. And we've divided the kids into four groups, all the kids in Minneapolis. The the group that's performing the lowest is the kids who have been flagged as homeless highly mobile at any point during the window of this study. Didn't matter when, this group here. This is over 3,000 kids. And you'll notice they start the third grade level, the 12th percentile on a national basis. And people were really surprised when you look cumulatively like this to discover that close to 14% of the students in the Minneapolis public schools had been identified as experiencing homelessness at least once during this time frame. And their average academic achievement was significantly lower than all the other groups. There were also children who'd never experienced homelessness but lived in poverty who were qualified for free meals in the National School Lunch Program. And you can see their achievement, it's significantly better than this group who experienced homelessness. Um, but it's much, much lower than the national average on this test, which is shown with the solid black line. You'll also see here there's a a small group, 4%, of kids in Minneapolis who who have reduced-price meals in contrast to the 57% who are qualified for free meals. That's because in the National School Lunch Program in Minneapolis, most of the kids who are eligible or have such poverty levels, they're eligible for free lunch. And the difference is 130% of the poverty level for a family versus 185% of that level. And then you have what we call the low-risk group, only 25% of the kids in this district, and that doesn't indicate anything except that they weren't identified as either qualified for free, free and reduced meals or identified as homeless during this time frame. Now the difference, you can see that that low risk group starts at the 75th percentile on a standardized reading test and they continue to learn over time. In comparison, the kids experiencing homelessness start at the 12th percentile and they don't catch up to that low risk group until they're in the seventh grade. What you're looking at is a huge achievement disparity that, of course, everybody in the Twin Cities and across the nation is worried about. And that's a story of risk. However, that's not the whole story here. Now in the next picture I'm going to show you is a a look at that bottom group the kids have experienced homelessness but not as an average but as individuals now you see the national average again but now you're looking this is a you know one of those famous spaghetti pictures where you can't really tell Each individual looks like spaghetti, so you're going to have to take my word for it. And what you're looking at here is this tremendous variation. Among kids who have experienced homelessness, there's wide-ranging achievement. And about 45% of the kids in that group are doing just fine on reading as well as math. And this kind of data begs the question, well, how do we account for this variation? why are some of these kids doing so much better than other children on this standardized test and how and what can we learn to help those kids at the very low end who are struggling all the way along so we have been busy doing research trying to answer that question what makes the difference and we have gathered lots of data some data we can get from schools and Um, analyze what predicts achievement at school, but schools don't collect all the kinds of information we're interested in. When you study resilience, for example, the most powerful protective influence on child development is good parenting, good caregiving, and schools don't usually assess that. So this is a list of some of the main findings that we've observed. Um, data from the school district, school readiness matters in terms of achievement for homeless, uh, kids experiencing homelessness, attendance matters. Kids I- who are homeless tend to have lower achievement, I mean lower attendance, and you just don't learn as much if you don't attend school. Reading skills in the first grade is a very strong predictor of how you're going to do later in development, so having children, even if you're living in a shelter, going to school and doing well in reading is important. We also have done a lot of direct assessment while families were in shelters. We've had wonderful participation by families. They're extremely interested in contributing to a better understanding of what helps children succeed. They want their children to succeed. We've had very high participation rates in the research we've been doing since the very beginning, for more years than I care to acknowledge sometimes, parenting quality is extremely important. We observed that at the very beginning of our work, and our research keeps corroborating that. And, you know, we find that parenting not only matters, but parents are willing and able to learn how to be better parents under really rather difficult circumstances. We also have uh, assessed child cognition and the emotional self-regulation skills in children. We have set up, because we have wonderful collaborators in the shelter system, we've been able to set up uh, assessments right in the shelter environments with families and children and recruited them to participate with us. And one of the areas we've been really interested in is called executive function, and you may have heard about that along the way. Luminosity, those commercials you see for, you know, improve your brain, those are, those are uh, computer games to improve your executive function skills. These are the neurocognitive processes we all use over the life course to try to control our behavior and our thoughts and our attention and our emotions and I really have been appreciating how raptly attent- attentive you all look out there. You're using your executive function skills to pay attention to what I'm saying and I appreciated it. Either that or you're feeling very mellow from the drinks you've been having and you're keeping uh, you know, a low profile. But kindergartners need these skills to do well. You You need executive control to be able to listen to the teacher, pay attention, sit in the little circle, wait your turn, resist the temptation to fight with your next door neighbor in the kindergarten classroom, and so forth. These skills are really important for uh, learning all the way through your life, but they're particularly important if you want to get off to a good start in school. So we've been very interested in supporting and studying executive function skills in children. We've developed some interventions, which I won't tell you about. Maybe you can ask about it later. But in the course of all the research that I've been involved in over the years, we've observed that there's three basic strategies to promote resilience at the very basic level. One is to reduce or mitigate risk. Can't forget about that. Homelessness is preventable, and if you want to shorten it, end it, prevent it. Ending homelessness is a a grand challenge, but it's an important goal. You can boost resources and opportunities for people to promote resilience, and you can mobilize the power of the most important resilience factors in human development, which are relationships with other people, self-regulation skills and a whole other list these are the tools i call ordinary magic and you can l- read more about that or ask me more about it later i wanted to just have a shout out here because i'm about to wrap up some of the sh- examples that i think really stand out efforts to try to promote resilience in fam- children and families who are experiencing homelessness um, and these, most of these combine those three strategies I was talking about. The state has this program called Homework Starts with Home um, that is an effort housing focused, housing assistance blended with other interventions. Um, the Northside Achievement Zone and other programs that focus on whatever it takes to help kids succeed in school are accommodating the issues of homeless families so is the St. Paul Promise neighborhood across the way. Um, The efforts in Minnesota to provide scholarship funding for quality early childhood education, to invest in that kind of intervention has an important impact on kids experiencing homelessness as well as other disadvantaged kids. We need to educate our workforce on homelessness, trauma, and resilience and there's a couple examples here. Building Bridges is a program in the Minneapolis schools in which they try to train so- social workers to do their work most effectively with families and children experiencing homelessness. Shelters, like people serving people in many school districts as well, are trying to infuse a trauma-informed perspective into the work they do. And there's a huge movement underway to try to integrate quality data sets so we can analyze the data and figure out the best uh, way forward. The Minneapolis schools i have already mentioned, but there are efforts like the Hennepin University partnership that are trying to create integrated data where we can ask important questions, and MinLink, which is another data integration system at the university, but where they integrate uh, state data. Here's my take home message before we move on to your questions and discussion. Homelessness indicates academic risk, but homelessness, we can do something about it. We can try to prevent homelessness and we can intervene to try to boost the resources and mobilize the most important protective systems for children. We can promote resilience in children at risk and we've been most interested in protective factors that are malleable, that we can do something about. And I want you to keep in mind that the resilience of an individual child, whatever the adversity they're facing, uh, whether it's war, disaster, overcoming disabilities, or dealing with the chaos that comes along often with homelessness, Their resilience as students depends on the resilience of their families, their schools, their communities, and their teachers, and how they work together and support each other. And all of our futures depend on nurturing resilience and mitigating risk in these students, but also many others as well. I'll say thank you for your attention, for your executive function.
0: Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos and podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.